Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti, and I thank you for joining us. And I'm delighted to welcome for his first seasonal appearance. You've been screaming for him. Uh, you love having him on. It's Mr. Matt Dickinson. Hello. Thanks for the build-up. Hey, and just so you know, Dicko, Julian Lawrence was laughing, thinking I was talking about him no. because it's his... No, I'm always I'm always last being introduced, and I knew Dicko would be first. I was cheering for Dicko. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Yes, of course, as you've noticed, Julian Lawrence is here too. Later on, we're going to be joined by Bradley Ormisher, who did something that was, uh, that, that's pretty pretty cool, I think. Uh, he's, of course, he's uh, one of our uh, uh, star photographers here at the Times, and uh, he spent 90 minutes taking pictures of Neymar, of one guy. But that's coming up later on. We'll also be talking about what happened on Thursday night at the Emirates, in case you've been under a rock. But first, speaking of the Gunners, let's start at Stamford Bridge. Dick, I'm going to start with you. No, no Mesut Ozil, who was uh, who's injured, apparently. Um, Alexis Sanchez starts on the bench. Um, I was there. I, I, I thought it was... He kind of went for Iwobi and, um, and Danny Welbeck behind Lacazette and... Uh, and said, okay, you guys, we're going to draw a line in the sand here. Enough with the negativity. Let's not screw this up. If we lose this one too, if we lose heavily, the AGM's coming up. The Cronkies are coming to town. It's going to all get really ugly really quickly. So please, let's just play it safe, be disciplined, nick something if we can, and show them that we can play that way and uh, and we can outlast them. Is yeah. that pretty yeah. much what happened? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. It was Wenger, Wenger turns... Um pragmatist for uh, an afternoon. I mean, I was I was actually at the corresponding fixture last season, um, just as a punter. I got given a couple of tickets, and um, even, uh, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but I was incandescent um, just watching the team, you know, just sleepwalk into, you know, Chelsea were Chelsea, which last season was just, you know, phenomenally efficient and has a, an excellent game, but Arsenal were, you know, Arsenal with capital letters. They were just sluggish and and just picked off with such ease they hadn't come up with any kind of game plan to to upset Chelsea so at least you know even if the game plan was a bit shall we say prosaic uh, and no one likes to you know especially as a fan you don't want to see Sanchez on the bench you don't want to see a a sort of more workmanlike Arsenal team at least it was a plan and uh, yeah after 90 minutes nil nil you could say it was a plan that uh, that worked with a with a couple of narrow escapes and not many chances it's funny with with Arsenal because I was looking at the match ratings and our colleague Matt Hughes, uh, who of course is, is is very dark and grumpy most of the time. Um, he gave very low ratings to to, to both teams really. In fact, uh, I think between the two teams, there's only five sevens. Um, one of them going to Cesc Fabregas, which I strongly disagree with. I thought he was he was really quite poor in my opinion. I, I'm curious about this because, like you said, we have the stereotype of Wenger. He becomes unVenger. He becomes a problem. I mean. This is what we want him to do, right? To go and change things around for these big games so that they don't go and get, get hammered. But then next week when they, I don't know who they play next week, but presumably some bunch of schmoes, he's going he's gonna to go and, and, and change it back and they're going to screw up again. Is that what's going to happen? Or Yeah, probably Ozil will be back and Sanchez and with, with sometimes the issues they bring, but also sometimes the talent actually, you, know who, you know who he's playing next week? No. Tony Pulis. Oh, right, yeah, so, <laughs> so they're going to concede two yeah. on set pieces yeah. and lose 2-1. We'll maybe come back to Fabregas, but I agree with you on, on Fabregas. The, this game reminded me of that the 2-0 the win they had at City um, maybe three years ago, also where they, they decided to play really deep and Cazola in front of that uh, back four, if you remember, and just hit them on the counter-attack. And, that, and everybody after that said, oh, they find, finally they find a way to play away from home against those big teams. And after that, they had still that terrible record away from home. So let's hope that maybe now, especially if you look at this Chelsea performance and the one against Liverpool only three weeks ago, you look at them both and you say, OK, he seems to have learned something from the Liverpool battering, where he got everything wrong, possibly before the game, during the game as well, in terms of player selection, in terms of, you know, even... What the game plan was compared to yesterday, and let's see what he does in the next big away fixture, and and see see if 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 he's really learned or if he that was just an accident against Chelsea. Tico, uh, what does it say though if Arsenal putting in a very good performance uh, in a tough place to play means dropping Alexis Sanchez, uh, or are the two things not linked? Because because it, it, it just strikes yeah. me as like. This is what you would do if you thought that the guy was leaving in a few months and, yeah, he's a good player, but, you know, 
let's stick to the guys who'll be around for a while. Well, some suggestions. I mean, there was there was some muttering about you know still gathering full fitness, which I didn't I didn't find very convincing. But uh, I mean, you know, I, I I still find it jaw dropping that you've got an asset like that who is just so close to the end of his contract and about you know that you've you're, you get potentially writing off uh, these tens of millions of pounds unless obviously something happens in in uh, in January uh, domestically. But it's yeah, I still find that just a staggering symbol of of Arsenal's sort of ineptitude at management level. Um, Pedro has that one-on-one, should score that early-ish goal, and then suddenly you have to change your plan. You know, you could have been talking about Sanchez needing to be thrown on after half an hour um, because, you know, you look at the team and you think, right, we need a bit more creativity here, we need to take a bit more risks. Sanchez, when motivated the right way, let's, you know, let's not think he's just some sort of, you know, frippery. I think Ozil, we can, we can accuse of, of, of being a passenger at times. <laughs> Poor guy. But Sanchez, you know, when motivated and, you know, I, I thought at times last season at least he had the good grace to look exceedingly angry at uh, what was going on around him uh, and, you know, charge around trying to put it right at times. The idea that Arsenal are better off without Sanchez doesn't hold up, even if, as we say, a game plan worked yesterday. Am I reading you correctly when because you, you mentioned the Sanchez when motivated thing? Are you Are you part of that cohort of people who thinks that... Remember last year when when Arsenal put out those stats about Sanchez's running and you know that that sometimes he's uninterested and not motivated. Do, no, do I, I understand that no, correctly? It's more, it's more where his motivation goes, as I say, because he was he, he sort of motivated enough. I thought a lot of times, obviously last season, um, to get you know to, to to run around like like he'd been you know stung by a wasp. I think you know he while others sort of drooped and. And and you know completely sort of withered away. He at least um, you know cer- certain games looked like you know this is <laughs> I, I could see this wasn't good enough and and seemed like he wanted to do something about it. Trouble is, of course, an angry player can be charging around you know to ill effect and and you know not following the game plan or not linking with colleagues. And I think that was again part of the the problem. Is I'm, I'm I'm talking about a, a Sanchez who. You know, he's focused, focused on his job, you know, and and fitting fitting the team plan, not just sort of running around. Let's talk Chelsea. I, one thing that strikes me is Conte basically has two guys who can unlock teams who are well-organized and defend well, um, Hazard and Sask. Hazard, not fully fit, apparently, came off the bench. So I guess he felt he had to play he had to play Sask, and he played Sask in the, in, in, in the two with, with Conte and... I know he can. He hit a few good passes, but I don't think he dictated games the way I've seen him do in the past. They're kind of short in that department, aren't they? You have Bakayoko. How come Bakayoko is not starting this game? I don't understand. Okay, you, so you're going to compare Bakayoko's passing and no, creativity? No, no. With Let Sask? me explain. Let yes, me explain no. to you. You play the Community Shield against Arsenal. You get absolutely battered in midfield with Sesc and Conte mm-hmm. against Chaka and Ramsey. Okay. okay. Totally Bakayoko is not there. Yeah, is not there. So you don't have that option because he's, he's injured. Now you get into this game, remembering surely the community shield and thinking, okay, what went wrong that day in the community shield? Well, the midfield was not good enough. Sesk was not good enough. Conte was far too isolated to do the job that he usually does. At least for the first hour, make sure that we've got bodies in there, we've got physicality in there. We're not going to let them play. We're not not, not going to let them dictate Sesc? the game. Okay, I get it. You want Bakayoko on the pitch. Fine. Every you... day for the game okay, like this. Fine, and then bring Sesk on after 55, 60 minutes if you want. And then so let him... Actually, sorry, so you would actually recommend going into the game where your most creative passer on the pitch is freaking David Luiz? This is what you would do at home when you're yeah. defending... Premier League champion because I think this is the game where you had to you had oh, to dominate man. midfield. This is the game you had to dominate midfield. If you play an Arsenal that play this way, right? So they have the back three plus Bellerin plus Kolasinac, right? Yeah. You're basically talking five defenders. Plus in this game, unlike say the Liverpool game, Ramsey decided to follow instructions and <laughs> and sit alongside Granit Xhaka. So when Bakayoko looks up. And he sees seven dudes plus check in front of him. I would tend to trust. Cesc Fabregas to be able to pick out a, a pass and create something against this uncharacteristic Arsenal bus parking a lot more so than than Bakayoko. If you want to play Bakayoko, fine. Maybe maybe you don't play Pedro. Maybe you play some sort of three-five-two with Willian off off Morata, which they did against uh, which they did against Spurs, if I'm not mistaken. But for me, you have to have Sask or Hazard if opponents are going to defend because otherwise. 
How are you going to unlock them? Who can do that? You've got wingers who can do that. Pedro and William can do that. They can. You've got you've got you've got wing backs as well who can. No, I disagree with you. I th- I thought Chelsea were not strong enough in 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 central midfield. I thought Conte was by far too lonely or too isolated. Sorry, Chelsea didn't defend enough. That's why they were on the back foot in the first half. When Bakayoko came on, you could see the difference. Even if Cesc was still there, Tico, um Conte said that it was a great game. Both teams wanted to win. Blah blah blah. But he also pointed out that um, that maybe it was a little strange. Well, he did the whole like, well, I don't comment on refereeing, but it's strange that you know for the was it the third straight game they've had a guy a guy sent off in David Luiz. You were there. You saw the David Luiz tackle. Uh, in what parallel universe is that not a straight red? No, Plus, absolutely. he'd already been booked too, if I'm not mistaken. No, it was yeah, it, absolutely. It was it was a red card, no controversy, and um, there's no doubting the stats are there um, of their you know a run of red cards. If if we include um, back to the FA Cup final as well, but as I've written this morning, at the same time, you know I think it's uh, stretching it to suddenly sort of say Chelsea are a team of troublemakers. I think they had no red cards in the league last season. You know, one of their defining strengths of of last season was discipline in all respects you know tactical and you know in terms of temperament i just they looked a supremely controlled team and i think the only difference is obviously starting with a cup final they lose that they're getting desperate um victor moses gets sent off you come into this season you know you're losing at home to burnley that's a pretty desperate score at the start of a what was a pretty angsty start to the season with all the rows about transfers and stuff and you lose a couple of players in that and what's the you know the defining characteristic again yesterday? Louise getting sent off. Well, they're you know they're struggling again. So I think it's it's not like Chelsea has suddenly become a problem team. I just think they have hit a run which was not is not as sort of supremely controlled and um, as as it felt for most of last season. They've been stretched a bit, and when you get stretched, players start to do a few silly things and and lose their rag a bit. And that was certainly um, bloody silly by Louise yesterday, which he will regret over three banned matches, and um, that's. Another problem for Chelsea. Looking ahead for Chelsea, obviously he's going to miss the Stoke game and he's going to, yeah, I guess he's going to miss the City game. In my world, Chelsea have a guy whose skill set is actually similar in terms of the fact that he's tall and he can pass and maybe even more tactically intelligent than David Luiz, although probably not as athletic, and that is Christensen. And for me, the logical thing to do would be to just plunk Christensen there in the middle. I'm 99% sure that Conte is not going to do that and that you know, we'll get we'll get a bit of the old Rudiger in there, um, or maybe even a back four. But am I mad for suggesting that maybe he should yeah. look at Christensen rather than Christensen came on last uh, yesterday? Yeah, no, in the 89th minute. Yeah, I know, still. No, 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 that's fine. Oh, but is you, who do you go for? I, I would go for Christensen, man for man, with yeah. David Luiz in that position. I still think Aspilicueta would do a great job in the David Luiz position, and then you could have Rudiger if you prefer. On, on the right-hand side and Cahill on the left and Aspilicueta as the sweeper role. If he didn't want to move Aspilicueta and Cahill like that, I would definitely go for Christensen. Let's go and talk a little bit about what happened on Thursday night. Now, assuming you haven't been living under a rock, um, on Thursday you will know that uh, Arsenal were hosting Cologne in the Europa League. During the day on social media, I, I saw this viral video of, okay, there were 20,000 Cologne fans here. It wasn't 20,000 fans marching, but it was an absolute bucket load of them marching around Soho, jumping around, shouting things in German. Um, and the best thing about the video is, I don't know if you're aware of this, Dicko. Do you know who filmed that video? I'm not. Please tell me. Ken Loach. Yeah. This is a sign from God. If you're a certain type of nostalgic football fan, of all the people there, right? And I think it was like having a meeting in Soho, yeah, looks out the window, yeah. and he films it on his phone. To, 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 when you get filmed by, you know, one of the, I think it's fair to say, one of the greatest British filmmakers of the last 30 years, certainly in, in terms of social significance. I thought it was tremendous. Anyway, that was all fun and jolly, unless, you know, you were trying to get around Soho at the time. Later on in the evening... Uh, they went and they met up outside the Emirates. That's when things got a little hairy. They made an absolute ruckus and they were singing and being noisy. Some of the fans apparently tried to, they, they shut down the stadium. Some people tried to get into the stadium. Um, there was some some fighting with stewards. During the game, it, it was quite remarkable. They, they sang the whole time. There were, I think there were two flares in there. 
I spoke to I have a good friend who's who's an Arsenal fan who was there. He said it was absolutely brilliant, one of the best nights um, that he's had at the Emirates, just from a from a fan perspective. And he says, you know, I wish our fans could have been like that. Other people, Henry Winter, had a very good piece from his perspective on this on Saturday, saying that you know, well, if those had been English fans abroad, we you know we would have reacted differently. And there were people, there were Arsenal supporters who were scared and intimidated. Blah blah blah. Dicko, you. Your first instinct—it felt like a throwback, didn't it? Well, it is. I think I, Henry's point is is a, a, a very valid one. That you know, the, the thing it, it sort of slightly resembled was was this sense of occupation, um, which was unusual to be on the sort of receiving end. I mean, I've been too many times in towns and cities across Europe and the world where you know England fans have this particular thing where we say occupy and invade. You know, I, I mean, you go to Marseille. Um, Obviously, I know there was Russian, you know, nutters um, involved, but we we still went there and you know we take over a town square. I went there for the semi-final, France v Germany, and it felt very different. And so it did feel like this was sort of England on the receiving end of what that feels like when you suddenly have uh, numbers that you haven't anticipated, um, and within those numbers there are some who are you know either drunk too much or want to get. Larry with stewards, um, and the thing gets a little bit out of control. There's that issue, and sorry, I think sorry, I- Dicko, just just to, just sticking with that issue though, because I I think it's an important one that you raise. This whole occupying of the town square. I mean, I remember remember Athens and like Liverpool fans putting the red flags everywhere. I I'm just speaking for myself here, right? I'm from Milan. If you come into my hometown and you want to march around and whatever, that's fine. You start putting your flags on my monuments and my statues and harassing passers-by and whatever, then that's when I come out and I crack your freaking skull open. From what I noticed, in this case, they didn't do that. I, I, I don't think, you know, there weren't Cologne fans climbing Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square and stuff like that. They, they just kind of marched around in a noisy German way, and then they all met up near the Emirates. I mean, am I wrong on that? Marching through the center of town, I, I mean, well... Say some some people say it all felt very good humoured, and as as Henry wrote, other people say, well, there were times in it when it felt intimidating. I mean, I think ideally, I guess, um, which is where we'll get on to, is when if it feels like there are sort of police walking alongside and sort of making sure it's a jollyish uh, atmosphere, then then fine. I think say we'll get on to that issue of actually whether it was anticipated, whether it was controlled and whether it was policed adequately because i think that's obviously a key difference of when these yeah. you know and that's a key difference of how english fans are policed you know you you speak to the criminologists the the policing experts and they say certain forces have learned that actually you tolerate a certain amount and then you but you you keep a lid on it other forces particularly the french go right that's 50 blokes in a bar we've had enough and just go in and, and crack those skulls and uh, experience has shown that often actually that heavy-handed approach is a failed one because it just escalates. Softer policing has taken hold and is advised across a lot of Europe. Julian, we'll get to what happened at the Emirates and, and the policing issues that Dicko raised, but in terms of what happened during the day, I mean, when I watched the, the, the Ken Loach video, I made the point if those had been thousands of Filipino football fans singing those same songs and waving their fists in the air as Ken Loach filmed them, we might have had a different reaction, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I'm, I'm, I think the reaction... These are Cologne fans who haven't played in Europe for 25 years. This is the first game back in Europe for 25 years, and it's at Arsenal again, one of the, you know, the biggest clubs in Europe. So, yeah, they, they're happy to be there. London is a great city. Way, sorry if I jump in there. Cologne's other group games are in Borisov, which... Yeah. You know, I don't think many people want to go visit. And um, the other one Belgrade, <laughs> in Belgrade, get... <laughs> I don't think they'll be behaving that way yeah. for obvious reasons. Exactly. So, you know, they went there. They didn't, add, uh, on, not that I know. And again, I had friends, Arsenal fans who were there. An English friend who lives in Cologne, uh, Archie Rintert, who maybe some people know as well, who, you know, was familiar with a lot of the, the Scotland fans. I don't think they, they broke anything in, in central London. I don't think there were any sort of rioting or violence. You know, I don't think anyone was arrested in central London when the fans were there. They were just happy to be there. Yeah, OK, they, they, they were drinking all day, fair enough, and singing all day. But I don't think, apart from obstructing uh, circulation, like Gab said, if you wanted to go somewhere in Soho that day, 
then you know you struggled but apart from that they did nothing wrong at all i went on on i think it's it's fta.com or fta.de which is like this big fan forum of cologne fans and for really since the draw all they talked about was like how many people were going to go how they're going to go ticketless how a lot of them just wanted to give their team a send-off how so many people talked about like oh yeah you know like i went on an arsenal fan forum i met bob and he sold me four tickets blah 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 because he thinks the europa league is rubbish and he doesn't want to go and this was very openly going on ahead of time and I would assume, I'm not saying Arsenal should have monitored the Cologne fan forums or the Cologne media, but I would assume the police in Cologne would have, and they would have said, hey, Arsenal, there's all these people coming. How many fans do you expect to come? How are you going to deal with it if Cologne fans show up holding tickets that are not in the Cologne end? What is your plan for it? Are you not going to let them in? Are you going to, you know, do you have a plan B here? Absolutely. I mean, that's what you know. say. I dealt, especially around the Euros last year, dealt a lot with the police, um, and, you know, they they pride themselves on, you know, how they cross borders, how they are, um, they have the intelligence now to, you know, know exactly who they need to worry about, to know where they're going, when they're going, to have spotters, to have undercover police, have, you know, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a huge operation now, and thank God there has been, because, you know, those of us who remember back to, you know, Euro 2000 and stuff, it's, it's great. It's, it's been one of the sort of you know, the odd trouble aside, it's been a successful sort of campaign. But that is why it seems strange that this didn't seem to be anticipated. And and I know, I take what, you know, Julian says about there wasn't trouble and stuff. But again, if you're traveling either because you've bought tickets in the Arsenal end or you're traveling ticketless and expecting just to sort of somehow bunk, you know, bunk up at the stadium and get in by whatever means, uh, you know, I'm not saying that makes you a troublemaker or a rioter, but it it certainly, shall we say, complicates matters, doesn't it? Oh, no, the, when I said there was no trouble, I meant in central London yeah, on, yeah, yeah. You know, on the afternoon. Then, then when you get to the game, if you try to get in without tickets, that's wrong. Where, if you're German, French, English, it, it doesn't matter. You can't do that. The other issue and the fighting with the steward happened when some Cologne fans with, with tickets in the Arsenal end tried to get into the Cologne end, which obviously only had 3,000 seats. So the stewards couldn't just let all the Cologne fans, 20,000 of them or 15,000 of them, into that end. And that's where the, the, the clash happened as well. And then that takes you to the, to the point of the segregation. I mean, I know when Celtic came to the San Siro a couple of years ago, and, but not just there, when they see that there's a large cohort of fans who have tickets in other areas what they do is they clear out an area of the ground and they say right, y'all are going to go sit here and you fan who you know arsenal fan who are sitting here you're going to go sit somewhere else you know simple as we're doing this for for for, for safety reasons dick i want to ask you because a, a lot of people greeted this with sort of some nostalgia saying like wow this is this is wonderful cologne fans putting on a show why aren't our football grounds like this? And again, I know we've got listeners from all over the world for people who, who don't know the atmosphere at certain grounds, and I'm not singling out Arsenal, but there's a lot of places where if you stand, the stewards come and tell you to sit. And if you don't sit, then they, you know, cut your ticket allocation for your club if you're a visiting fan, for example, or in some places they'll they'll throw you out. It's, it's an ongoing debate. And I guess what I'm what I'm driving at is do you miss the past, and have we gone too much in the other direction now? Is is the game in England just a little, again, with some exceptions, some stadiums are still fantastic, a little too sanitized and, frankly, lame? I understand people who say it is, but to be honest, I'm so relieved it has changed. I mean, people say the sort of gentrification of English football has become a sort of dirty word, but, I mean, I, you know, when I've argued about it with people, I say, well, if gentrification means that, I can take my kids and not have to worry that they're going to get hit by a brick or if I can, you know, walk into the stadium and it doesn't smell of urine. And if gentrification means I get a, <laughs> get a seat and I actually watch the game rather than, you know, surging, the, you know, I mean, when I was a teenager, yeah, did I love some of the surging? Yes, but actually that was that was a sort of a moment in life and actually am I pleased for safer stadia? Yeah, you know, am I pleased that occasionally you can get food that isn't um, horse burger um, <laughs> then you know I am so yeah this sort of gentrification has become a dirty word but you know what most of what comes under that banner is actually a bloody good thing 
Dicko, the, the, the headline, I suppose, pregame was uh, was Wayne Rooney's return to Old Trafford. And before we get into the game, he obviously got a tremendous ovation and, and stuff like that. Um, a friend of mine who who re, who's a big United fan but really dislikes uh, dislikes Rooney, he texted me during the game or WhatsApp me and said, "It's like they've forgotten that this is the guy who drove Fergie mad and." handed in a transfer request talking all about ambition when in reality he just wanted to get his grubby little hands on more money now he really hates Rooney is that unfair or is that just kind of like part of being a football club or it's like part of being a family where maybe I don't know if you have siblings Dicko but maybe you went through a stage where one of them wasn't very nice to you but in the end they're family and well, I've, I remember being really struck by one game once when I was, I'm trying to remember who it was against, but Ryan Giggs was getting absolute pelters from the fans. Um, he was, confidence had gone for a bit and, you know, and he was hesitating over the ball and missing chances. And, you know, it felt like half the Stretford end was sort of getting on his case. And you sort of, I remember that sort of jolt of it of like, oh my God, you know, this is Ryan Giggs. So, it, you know, it, it can happen, it can happen, albeit briefly to, to any player. And, and, that was just confidence, and you know the Rooney thing. He massively pushed his luck the same way as Terry did at Chelsea. You know, Mr. Chelsea. You know, blood runs with Chelsea blue, blah blah. But actually, you know, more than happy to squeeze the place for uh, you know news offers from other clubs to to get a contract yeah, rise. It's you know. a bit different when you upset Sir Alex Ferguson and you go. Yeah, well, Fergie, Fer- Rooney would have gone if, if Fergie had stayed for another you know another season. There's absolutely you know he wanted to. You know, Ferguson wasn't the last row in any argument, as we know full well. And the last word that he would have wanted in that Rooney argument was to, you know, sell him. Um, the same way as with Beckham, he he wanted to unceremoniously dump him for what he regarded as disloyalty over over that contract and that statement he put out. I mean, bear in mind he did put out a statement on the, you know, half an hour before a match, um, basically saying this club lacks my ambition. Um, you know, he, he went about it in a really, really crass way. But I wrote plenty about that and how badly it was handled by him and Stretford. But um, even taking in all that, I think it would have been a pretty churlish person who would have denied him that type of uh, reception yesterday. The Europa League game, which which I watched in Atlanta, um, I thought Everton were absolutely embarrassing. Um, United take the lead right away. It could have all collapsed. Instead, Rooney put in what I thought was a tremendous performance. Now, when you juxtapose this, and I'm not going to go into his private life, but I think everybody reads the newspapers. Dicko, is it a case that, you know, the actually the old cliche is actually true and that, you know, when stuff isn't going your way off the pitch, away from our work, sometimes we dive back into into our work, we focus on that, and it's easier for us to, to, to kind of regain control and, and insulate us. Well, yeah, I think he's, you know, he, he certainly came out with, there's no doubt a point to prove, partly obviously because the occasion, um, being back at Old Trafford, and um, maybe because he uh, quite rightly feels he's got a massive great debt to uh, his club just on um, PR. You know, he caused grave embarrassment to himself and, and others at Everton who sort of put faith in him. Um, you know, he was brought in partly on this sort of role model to the younger players ticket, and, you know, within weeks is um, spending a night with the police. So, <laughs> so you know, role model to the younger players? players well who, that's who, sort of, you who, know, who why, said this did somebody actually say this human took a bit of persuading and if i were him i would have taken a bit of persuading to to splurge that kind of money in but part of the sort of package of bringing rooney in was a you know you play where we tell you you know you you're uh, sort of probably a number nine or ten uh, or wide forward not a midfield player and uh, you stay disciplined and there was a long chat about keeping your nose clean and obviously hopefully um, using some of his worldly wisdom to guide younger players, to show him, you know, I mean, he has been England captain for a heck of a long year. He has, you know, he has played at the top level. You would hope that some of that experience uh, can be passed down, wouldn't you? That, that would that would make sense. You know what's interesting? Actually, on the role model argument, I, I actually think that a lot of the things that make Rooney great, um, and, and let's not forget, I mean, if he was... He's a tremendous goal scorer despite not being a center forward. He's achieved so much in the game. I don't know to what degree those things can be passed down because if you don't have Rooney's skill set, if you don't have Rooney's ability to to insulate yourself from off-the-pitch issues and stuff, 
you're, you're not going to learn that from watching him. I mean, I, I, I get the role model thing. Like if Frank Lampard's your role model, so you have a guy who, you know, trains longer and harder than everybody and whatever else and makes the most of his ability. Yeah, he can be a role model because you too can make the most of your ability. I mean, Rooney to me seems like a, a curious one because the things that make him great are things that other players don't have. He can't always insulate himself as well. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, just a light on one bit, the 2010 World Cup where he stunk, you know, he, came, he was sort of being p- pitched as, you know, could he join the the top five players in the world and he you know i know it was not him alone but he in particular stunk stunk the place out and um with hindsight that was a lot to do with he was miserable as hell off the pitch for various reasons so it's not you know it's it's not always that simple to do that it's it's his football intelligence though no really also that sets him apart from others and and that's something you could yeah, but that's something that you can try to pass on calvert lewin for example probably has a lot to learn from Rooney in terms of you know being intelligent on the pitch and some sort of positioning and maybe you know maybe that thinking differently on that occasion and think differently on this occasion and why you you should think there is different than why you were thinking before they spent 140 million but um they also lost an 80 million pound top scoring asset their net spend not insignificant i think it was the fourth highest in the Premier League, but it was, I think, right around 60 million, something like that, which, you know, in this day and age isn't certainly relative to what to Mourinho's net spend. Um, you know, it's not even in the same galaxy, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and th- no, that's true. And they clearly miss the goal scorer, you know, Lukaku. They haven't replaced him at all. They haven't bought pace. All that money spent, you don't buy pace, is something that is hard to understand. And if you were an Everton fan, you probably be quite angry to the fact that you can spend all that money and still not buying anyone with a bit of pace as well which is clearly exactly what you need especially when you decide that your game plan on a game like this would be to sit really deep and and try to play on the counter-attack so I'm not really sure about the transfer planning there I'm not really sure exactly who yeah, decides who, 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 who decides Deco? So Kuman has a central role playing Yeah I know there, but they must but, have some recruitment schlub right? No but they obviously have Steve Walsh <laughs> yes, I forgot. Yeah, of course. Who came from? You know, left Leicester to go to Everton. Yeah, Dicko. Yeah, no. I'll so this is this is this is the brains behind Ahmed Musa and stuff like that, and <laughs> and Hernandez. Did, did Steve Walsh I mean, really I, think I, that Sigurdsson plus Rooney plus Klassen and then we play on the counter-attack is a good idea? Or I don't know. I, well, that's the manager's got to take responsibility for that. And what, for everything I know, what that happens at Everton, Kuman is. Um, you know he's um, he's no soft touch with the board. While I'm sure some of the options they brought in were, you know, partly inspired by you know other figures at the club. I, I would be surprised if anything's happened that he um, hasn't given you know full assent to, um, even if it wasn't his idea in the first place. So no, he's got to take he's got to take responsibility. And like Julian says, it's just blind in the obvious. I think someone one of our colleagues tweeted even before kickoff. Um, you know. For a team that's going to play on the counter attack, this is a team without the ability to counter attack. So it's you know it was it wasn't like it was unforeseen even uh, even from the press box. It just didn't make sense as was blindingly obvious pretty quickly. If you're going to play uh, on the counter attack, trying to do it without pace is um, it ain't going to work. And uh, quite how some, a coach of Kuman's apparent intelligence couldn't see that, um, God knows. I suppose maybe he's waiting for Adamola Lookman until he's ready and just chuck him in up front, right? Calvert-Lewin. Calvert-Lewin is the only one with pace. and well, he's Lookman's a very... probably quicker. Though. Yeah, Lookman. Yeah, but it's... Yeah, I know. True. Lookman, Lookman's a child, or he looks no, no, like no. a child. But, but, but I mean, goal he scored is... last year? Yeah, Mor- yeah. Morales can stretch the team as well. Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, I, I, yeah right. bizarre. bizarre. Okay, um, one final thing on this, on this game. United are top of the table. They're level on points and goal difference with Manchester City. We all talk about how wonderful Manchester City is, how dominant, blah, blah, blah. If I were putting my Mourinho hat on, I could say like, well, okay, well, we, we've got the exact same goal difference and the same points they do. Why aren't you saying that we're just as great as they are? And the answer to that might be um, you score a ton of late goals in garbage time. Is that a concern, all the late goals, or is it just inevitable and does it really not matter when the goals are scored? I just think City are doing it with a little, I guess, a little more variation in the game, creative variation. I think the season is panning out as we all expected, which was two Manchester clubs leading the way. Um, I think, um, yeah, we felt sort of denied that, you know, Mourinho Guardiola sort of 
uh, high noon last season um, for various reasons, and it's you know it's great that it seems to be bubbling up this season. Um, I thought City would take it because I just thought they had a greater depth of squad, greater creative options, and um, while still being a bit fragile at the back. And I mean, thus, thus far everything looks like it's sort of panning out. I think as most of us would have thought. It does seem to me a little bit that United script is score a goal, control the game. I know when they exhaust the others, pile on. Whereas with City, it's like score a ton of goals and then ease off and then <laughs> yeah. send on the substitutes who want to impress and then they score. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I Nothing think wrong with that. Though. Just no, different, no, no. different ways of playing, right? Yeah, and, but different managers' approaches. Yeah. And, and different and, opponents too. Exactly. And I think and I think that's probably exactly the kind of messages that both managers are saying at halftime. One saying, continue, continue, attack, attack, attack. And the only one saying, you know, we're in the lead, let's control. And then you know that later on, Marcel is going to come on or Rashford, who whoever not started first. You've got Lingard who can come on, Herrera yesterday, but he could have been Mata when he didn't start. And you know you've got all that asset as well coming on late. But City have the same as well. Now this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every highlight and every goal from every single game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup, albeit, as I often point out, probably not every single game, but probably from the from the third round forward or something. Um, it's just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. I think that's very good value for money. And I speak as somebody who, as I recently discovered, I give nearly 28 pounds to BT Sport every month. And I used to be able to see Julian, um, I don't know, six times a month on my television. Now it's, it's only twice a month. Um, and, and that displeases me. Um, anyway, uh, Dicko, what was your favourite goal of the weekend in the Premier League? Uh, it's a bit of a, uh, not my usual choice. I'm going for Antonio Valencia because I mean, normally I go for, I, I demand a bit of deafness uh, in a goal uh, for my favourites. But um, I'm making an exception this week partly because I wasn't blown away by the guile um, of too many others and partly just because when, when you hit a first time um, shot like that, uh, top corner there's just uh, well it's just there's the wow factor um, and what's not to like it was um, it was a stunner wasn't it I think the technical term is uh, thunder bastard um, uh, stronker thunder bastard um, stonker you can call it all of those but uh, yeah no it was just who doesn't like a first time hit that uh, flies like that uh, Julian I went for German Defoe on Friday evening because of the importance of the goal, obviously winning, you know, Bournemouth their first win. And just because that's, that's what he does. And, and what I loved about it all is that at no point he looked at the goal. And a lot of strikers would have still had a quick look and then... To see if it was still fight. there. No, still, where they were compared to, to the goal and where the goalkeeper was. Yeah, but but his awareness... Got that crazy, he's like a bat. He's got that, that crazy peripheral exactly. vision and that's where he knows where everybody is at all times. And, and yeah. that's what I love. When I'm not sure about everybody, but at least the keeper. And he knew exactly where the goal was. And I think the awareness is fantastic. And that's why I like it. We're now joined on the line by um, Bradley Ormisher, who uh, I, I told you before he'd be coming on. You probably have no idea who he is uh, from his photograph. He looks a little bit like Clive Anderson, only more handsome. Um, Bradley, you're, you're, you're a Times photographer, yep. and you you did this thing, which I think is really cool. And in fact, I'm, I'm hoping that in addition to the pictures on the paper, there's some sort of photo gallery online. You went to Parkhead. And you spent the whole game snapping Neymar. Yeah, that's right. It was um, it was something that normally, obviously, you wouldn't normally do um, because you're covering the game. You would be trying to get the goals, celebrations, exactly um, like I did yesterday at Manchester United for Everton when they won four nil. The sports editor expects me to um, come back with the goals and celebrations, but last Tuesday was different. And the brief was to follow Neymar around for ninety minutes and try and capture what he's all about. Um, to give a photographer that kind of platform is brilliant to, to be able to go and do that, which is, again, completely unusual from the norm. And it's something brilliant to work at the times that they do that. Um, the sports editor wants you to go and do different stuff 
and completely out of my comfort zone, especially the writing. And then it says, it's not out of my comfort zone to go and photograph Neymar for 90 minutes, which is great and up close and personal. You're very privileged to be on the touchline watching him. But then to come back and he says, yeah, and I want 400 words or something is, um, ooh, is something a bit of a shock to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. The the the, uh, the ex pros who write their columns, uh, a lot of them are in the same position. Oh, so. frightening! It took, me, <laughs> it took me two days in a lot room. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to ask. At one point, you you sort of explained that you use different shutter speed. Now, I'm not a photographer. Can you just explain the the bits when when you know you, you talked about the difference between a one eight hundredth of a second shutter speed versus the you know one twenty fifth of a second? Yeah, sure. Uh, as I say, the 800th of a shutter speed is kind of the minimum you would use because um, you'd maybe use a 1,000th or 2,000th, even more. So that actually freezes the action, which is your normal day-to-day stuff, the bread and butter stuff that you, that you need to do to capture the goal, to capture the celebrations. But because this was a different assignment, I was actually trying to do something that was completely different and get a bit of a sense of movement and a, and a, and a sense of his power and running and stuff like that. So what you kind of do is you drop it to a, a, that was a 25th of a second, which is really, really slow and really would be difficult for a non-photographer even to handhold it because you just get so much movement. But as things move to the side, you kind of pan. And there was a lots of stuff, by the way. I'd taken, I'd taken hundreds that night, and I'd, I kind of did it for about, oh, maybe half an hour of the game, trying to get that picture. But it was him moving, but his, his face was sharp, the ball was moving, his arms were moving, his legs were moving. What you do need is you, you need a focal point, which is normally his head, which is the sharp point, which is hopefully what I achieved. Hi, Bradley. It's, it's Julian. Um, Hi, Julian. Uh, bonjour. Bonjour. I, lo- I mean, as a PhD fan, I absolutely love you for, for what you did with, you know, with Neymar. Um, and, and the other thing that struck me when I saw him play, and maybe people don't realise when they watch on TV, is the pace he has on the ball, especially without the ball. A lot of people can run fast. But yeah. with the ball, not many players, even as, as this level, run as fast as him on the ball. And that's why I love so much the, the, the main photo in the paper this morning where you, like you just explained how you capture him yeah. on the ball. But were you struck as well by the pace he has yeah, definitely, board. definitely, because um, I don't know if it's actually in that bit. Well, what, what, for the first kind of 15, 16 minutes, he, he didn't do a great deal. He was um, a couple of flicks, a couple of one-touch passes and stuff, and he, was, he was, um, didn't affect the game a great deal. However, on his goal, as soon as he got the ball, he was behind Ralton, Ralston by a yard or two. With one pass, he's, he's a yard or two in front of him, and then he kept his body between Ralston and the ball so, that, so he couldn't tackle him. And he, he just held him off and he even slowed down at such a thing. And he just drew the goalkeeper and clipped it in. Beautiful. And, and that pace, but it was the burst of pace that did it. That when the midfielder got the ball, he absolutely cruised past him. He just put the turbos on and went right past him. And then the rest was, it was easy for him. It's some stunning stuff. Um, I'm, I'm sure they're going to put this in a gallery on the website. Uh, uh, so please go check it out. Thanks so much, Bradley. Nice, nice to talk to you, Gab. All the best. Cheers. Au revoir, Julian. Au revoir. <laughs> Bradley Warmisher, one of our uh, Times photographers. Now, we rarely venture into the championship, mainly because I don't follow it and know very little about it and would probably say even dumber things about it than I say about other things. But, Dicko, um, the fact that it's Harry Redknapp, the fact that he's leaving his post at Birmingham, it does strike me as significant since this person was apparently on the verge of becoming England manager multiple times. I see he's quoted this morning saying that that's it, um, him in management, but we, we can't ever say that, can we? Um, Harry Redknapp, is he, is he seriously going to walk away now? I think he's probably retired about 17 times. I, mean, I don't think anyone can be shocked that he's gone. They are second bottom, four points from eight games. It ain't looking great. But um, the weird thing is that I mean, he brought in a load of players. They'd spent a decent amount of money. So I think the, you know, the squad squad looks capable of doing a lot better than this. The thing we can't say is Harry Redknapp's finished in football. We can never say Harry Redknapp's finished in football. Now, speaking of experienced uh, English managers, Roy Hodgson is the new Palace boss, and he made his debut with a defeat at home to Southampton. Was this a right choice by your your mate and soon-to-be podcast guest, Steve Parrish, if he wants to come on? Everybody's telling me that it's the right call. I'm not so sure. I mean... Th- I like Roy, he's 70 years of age. I don't really see what the long-term plan is with him. And if it's a short plan, do you really need like a staying up mission when after just four games in the league? I don't understand why you couldn't have picked someone else with a more longer-term plan. Good luck to Roy because with City and United and Chelsea to come, it could well be like eight games with zero win. So 
good luck to them. But Ipswich, Ipswich were in the same position a very long time ago and still stayed up, so there's still hope, I guess. All right, enough nonsense. Manchester City put six past Watford. They did even better than last year when they put five past them, and they were pretty darn close to flawless, except maybe the fact that one of the goals was offside. Uh, Dicko, when they play like this, they're pretty much untouchable, right? Well, they're certainly showing why, yeah, I and so many others tipped them. I mean, I'd say, back to that issue, I think they've got the strongest squad. We'll give Guardiola last season to uh, adjust, shall we say, but he was given plenty of scope to spend a fortune when you spend that sort of money on a team, not just to see them win, but to see them win with a bit of flair. Tottenham, on the other hand, are held by Swansea. Julian, it's your first appearance this season, uh, so uh, we haven't heard from you yet whether there is such a thing as a Wembley curse, whether it is back in effect, or if it's just people making excuses, as Pochettino himself has said. I don't believe in hoodoos or curses and things like that. I think they you know, they lacked a bit of energy after the Champions League uh, game in midweek. I think they... They lacked a bit of ideas as well. I mean, 26, go- 26 shots I think they had, but expected goals was only 1.15 or something like that. So they didn't actually create that big chances to a win. A lot the- of bad shots. Yeah, to win the game. So, uh, you know, I think, yeah, I think just come back in two weeks' time and, and they'll win at home. And a bit of credit to Paul Clement as well, no? Very much so. With a name like this, it could only be good. Another minor miracle for Burnley, who escaped with a point from Anfield. But... Um, they were really, 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 really lucky this time, weren't they? Uh, well, I think that's been a bit, uh, bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, you know, the fact is, was they've won away at Chelsea. They've drawn. <laughs> no, no, no! In this game, in this game, I don't really care about Chelsea. No, you, well, in this game, come fact, on. The fact, the fact is that it's, uh, I mean, I quite like Dice came out afterwards and said, "Look, um, that was." Uh, no, no. If you're if you're going to quote Dice, you need to do his voice. That's as far as I'm going. No, I mean, look, he came out and said, look, it was, I think he sort of held up his hands and said, that was pretty ugly, wasn't it? But we had a plan. We stuck it long. We stuck it down Liverpool's throats. They didn't like bits of that. When you're winning at Chelsea, drawing at Tottenham and Liverpool, um, good luck to you. West Ham are stinking it up near the bottom of the table after a goalless draw with West Brom. And Slavin Bilic is getting stick for his use of Chicharito Hernandez, who had somehow had just one touch in the penalty area, apparently. Now, Village disputes the account that he's playing Chicharito on the wing because he says that Chicharito, Andy Carroll, and Michael Antonio, they're all strikers, and he's actually playing three center forwards. Julian, is this just semantics? For me, it's all BS. <laughs> Complete BS. From start to finish, the whole thing is BS. I don't even understand how someone who's a Premier League manager can come up with something like this, where, first of all, forwards and strikers are two different things, and you can be a forwards not good as a striker, but be a very good forward and be a striker who can't play wide. That's all. And it's just Chicharito doesn't make sense why you play him wide. What, to put the ball in the box, to do crosses? The problem is Antonio can really only play wide, right? (laughs) Yeah. But work it out, mate. That's your job. (laughs) But don't come up with those kind of excuses. Gab, one for you. Paris Saint-Germain struggled to be Lyon 2-0 with two own goals and Neymar and Cavani appear to argue over who gets to take a penalty. Gab, what's going on? Or oh, better yet, since I know far more about this than you do. Not really. Uh, shall I just tell you? Why, of course, please. Educate us. No. So the game... happened for a PSG fan, by the way. Yeah, but I'm trying to be objective for once. Uh, and so you have a PSG fan here and you have a guy who hates Qatar and PSG uh, in Deco on the other hand. So I think I think I am probably the most balanced and measured person here. But please continue. You, you, me you give the, my opinion. You give your opinion because I'm this. interested in your opinion. But it's the game against Lyon yesterday. Big game of the weekend at the Parc des Princes. Frustrating. And then there's a free kick on the edge of the box. There was, a, there was one a bit further out, a bit before. Neymar took it, went in the wall. This one is on the edge of the ball. Cavani fences it, goes to get the ball. And Dani Alves sort of rushes in, gets the ball before Cavani to give it to Neymar for Neymar to take the free kick. And it looked like a bit of aggro already between Alves, who's obviously Neymar's twin, and Cavani. And then a few minutes later, there's a penalty for PSG after a foul on Mbappe. And the penalty taker at PSG is Cavani. has always been Cavani since Ibra left. But Neymar still tries to speak to him and says, would you mind him, you know, giving me the penalty for me to take? And Cavani goes, no, 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 off you go. And then Neymar tries again and Cavani says, off to go. Cavani misses the pen. 
And after it was a lot made about those two incidents, Cavani left the pitch without waving to the crowd, with the first to go into the dressing room, first to leave the dressing room after. He didn't speak to the media. So it looked like there's maybe a bit of something getting on there between him and, and maybe the, the Brazilian connection of Alves and, and, and Neymar on who takes one, who has the responsibilities in that team. Dico, the, the PSG are falling apart, Qatar is falling apart, the whole World Cup's going to get scrapped. <laughs> I'll never have to go there again. No, but Dick, I, I want to get you on this because I don't understand. We've seen people fight over penalties before. In fact, I remember um, Juan Paulo Di Canio once, of course, famously scrapping with Frank Lampard. But that was a different situation because Paulo had been the penalty taker before and he came back and whatever. And then Harry quickly sorted it on a pitch side. They pay a manager, Unai Emery, who's coming off, I thought, an absolute stinker of a domestic season. It's his job. Decide. None of this going up. Hey, do you mind? Hey, Edinson, do you mind if I take the penalty? And by the way, somebody ran the numbers on this at ESPN. Since 2013, Edinson Cavani, 19 penalties, converted 16 of them, including last night, which he missed. Neymar has made 12 of 18. Dico, can you fathom this zoo-like atmosphere where Unai Emery doesn't have the, the, the cojones to do anything about it? No, no, you're right. That's, that's what it is. Was there almost an incident with the? Um, I mean, it's very different, obviously, because it, well, by the time City were smashing them in, obviously they could afford the Raheem Sterling to take that. But there was a brief sort of um, look to the bench of what the hell's meant to, meant to be going on then, when it matters, um, and the manager is not just being controlling and decisive, and it's not just clear that those um, in charge. Then, yeah, you got problems. I'm gutted for them. <laughs> Hello, I'm Paddy Bombay, one half of The Sweeper, which is a uh, fantasy Premier League tip service brought to you by The Times. Uh, you can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football and you will get an email every Friday morning with all your best hints and tips for the coming weekend. Congratulations, first of all, to Wilson Edmondson and his team Twins United, who moved to the top of our mini league. There's a, a 1,300 strong contingent in there now and he's top of the pile. And when you sign up for The Sweeper, you will get entry code to join the league and be eligible for our monthly prizes. In terms of tips this week, uh, Matt Ritchie led the way from our point of view. Uh, we suggested him as a, a cheap alternative to Sadio Mane following his suspension, and he popped up with two assists and 11 points, which was very nice. Jamie Vardy with nine points, Pascal Gross seven, and a selection of others picking up some useful returns, including Robbie Brady, who was one of our under-the-radar selections two weeks ago, taking over with another nice six-point haul. Sergio Aguero led the way in terms of the whole league, 20 points with three goals and an assist as Man City slaughtered Watford 6-0 away. We will delve into Man City's options going forward and whether you should be picking them up, whether you should be considering them and how good value they represent in our piece this week, our weekend recap, which is on the Time Sport website now. We'll also discuss whether you should stick with the Spurs players after they failed miserably in a nil-nil draw at home to Swansea, and as well as how to approach the uh, the midweek EFL Cup games and whether they affect your transfer strategy this coming weekend. That's thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football to sign up for our free weekly email. It's full of tips and advice every week. Enjoy. That's all we've got time for today. Many, many thanks to my excellent guest, Julian Lawrence, here in the studio. Matt Dickinson joining us from uh, from somewhere with it. Is it East Sheen? Mortlake? It is East Sheen. There yeah. you go. And Times Photographer Bradley Armisher. Check out his stunning um, snaps of, of Neymar. Now remember, it's just eight pounds for an eight-week trial. If you want to sign up, just search the Times online. And of course, this season, in addition to our wonderful content, you can access highlights of every single game in the Premier League Championship. League and Europa League. We're going to be back next Monday uh, where we'll probably be looking back on Roy Hodgson's stunning upset as he leads Crystal Palace past free-scoring Manchester City. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. 